0: Welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. Now you might remember a few weeks ago, I did an episode about Elizabeth Park Custis Law, and I mentioned that there's a lot of stuff about Elizabeth that I don't know. And if anybody out there does know, they should contact me because I'd be interested to find out. Well, my guest this week did exactly that. (laughs) This is my friend, Dr. Cassandra A. Good, who I have met and worked with in the past. She is an historian, writer, and a teacher in the Washington, D.C. area. She's the author of Founding Friendships, which is an excellent book about the friendships between men and women in the early American Republic. So pretty relevant to this podcast. And she's currently working on a book about Martha Washington's grandchildren, the Custises. So hello, Cassandra.
1: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
0: In your book, Founding Friendships, you talk about the friendships between men and women in the early republic. How would you characterize those friendships, Uh, and in what way are they different from male and female friendships
1: today? You know, the word friend gets used in a lot of different contexts back then. And so I had to decide for myself, you know, what, what am I talking about in terms of a friendship between men and women? And this was a relationship that was affectionate, that was reciprocal, and that the people in it described as a friendship. And those relationships also involved choice and freedom to leave, unlike marriages at the time. It was pretty hard to leave a marriage, and you didn't have quite as much latitude in terms of who you were going to marry uh, versus who you were going to be friends with. And I think that choice and freedom are sort of key terms here because those are also really important values in the early republic. So these friendships really represent the values of the time period, and in fact, they better represent those kind of values and especially equality than any other relationship between men and women at this time. Uh, Marriages, you know, people start talking about marriages being based on friendship and equality at this period, but legally, with the doctrine of coverture, a man still had legal power over his wife. Um, She couldn't own property if they were married unless there was some special arrangement. And, you know, the men had a lot of power over women, whereas in a friendship, they really didn't have that. There was a much more egalitarian nature to it. I do want to point out, though, that what I'm really talking about here is a phenomenon with upper middle class uh, or elite uh, white people, basically. And that doesn't that's not to say that it was impossible for these relationships to happen with other people. But these are the people that left the kind of records that tell us about those friendships. These are the people who were literate um, and who could afford paper and pens and postage to write each other the kind of letters that are great sources for this. In terms of comparing these relationships to today, you know, I think back then and now there's still a sort of prejudice against friendships between men and women in the sense that people assume there must be something sexual. And... You know, I didn't mention in my definition, you know, there is nothing sexual. I don't think that a physical aspect of a friendship means it's not a friendship. It depends how people are defining it. The difference really between then and now is that if there was a sexual element, the risk there or even the perception of a sexual element, the risk to women was so much higher back then, especially an unmarried woman. Her reputation and her ability to find a husband depended on her reputation as a virgin. And if there was any hint that that was not the case, she could be unable to get married, which meant she wasn't going to be able to support herself financially. So it's actually a pretty serious... The stakes are pretty serious for women in terms of the risks of these friendships, unlike today, fortunately.
0: So would you say...
1: If there's a man
0: and woman who in the 18th century that were married to other people, like they're both already married, friendships between them maybe had a little bit more leeway because people would just sort of assume nothing was going on? Or was the gossip just as bad?
1: Well, usually what people did in those circumstances is include their spouses. So if you look at George Washington's letters to Elizabeth Powell, for instance, he always mentions Martha towards the end of the letter um, and that she he's sending her good wishes too. And so that's sort of the safety feature there. And for women who were married, they were supposed to have their husband's permission, basically, to be friends with or correspond with a man. And in fact, Elizabeth Powell gives Washington's nephew, Bushrod Washington, a hard time because he writes her without getting her husband's permission first. And uh, she says, you know, you know better than to do this. Because there's sort of an unwritten rule about that. But yeah, I think there is a little bit more safety. And actually for women who have been widowed and are slightly older, they probably have the most leeway. All right. So
0: uh, that was your previous book. Tell me a little bit about the current project that you're working on and what inspired you to write about the Custis family.
1: Yeah, so when I was researching Founding Friendships, I came across several friendships between Eliza Park Custis, later Eliza Park Custis Law and Men, and then her sister Nellie Custis Lewis. And, you know, I always had to look at who are these people. I had never heard of either of them, and... I discovered that they were Martha Washington's grandchildren, George Washington's step grandchildren, and that George Washington had helped raise both of them, basically de facto adopted Nellie. I was like, I thought George Washington didn't have kids. How have I never heard of these people? What happened to them? And I started looking and I thought, well, surely somebody's written a biography of this family. And it turned out, you know, there are a couple of books from like the 50s without footnotes mm-hmm. about them, but that was it. And there's not even really scholarly articles about them. Their papers hadn't been transcribed for the most part. A a group of Nellies had been published in this amazing volume by Patricia Brady called George Washington's Beautiful Nellie. And that is a wonderful source. But that's only the tip of the iceberg of her letters. And so they also had two siblings another sister, Martha Custis Peter. And then the youngest was a brother, George Washington Park Custis. Went by, I mean, I usually just for ease of a name that long, him by his nickname as a kid, which was Wash. Mm-hmm. And the four of them actually, even though they are not blood-related to George Washington, they're the ones that are celebrities as the first family during the presidency. And they are also the ones who, after Washington's death, really claim the mantle as Washington's family. He had blood-related nieces and nephews, but it's these Custises who have ended up with all the Washington relics, all the stuff. They don't have Mount Vernon, but they have all the stuff from it that they're displaying in their own homes in the D.C. area. And they're sort of making careers, even the women, out of being related to George Washington. That's their entree into society and into participating in politics. So I really tell the story, or I will be telling the story in this book, of their birth during all four of them were born during the Revolution and live until the eve of the Civil War. And in some ways, I see their story of what happens to them and how they set out their public presence as failing to live up to the kind of ideals that the founding fathers and that founding generation established. I think that in some ways, their failures are what gets us to the Civil War. Like, not them personally, but, (laughs) you know, although, you know, George Washington Park Custis's daughter married Robert E. Lee. And so we have this connection you know, this straight line, and people knew that Lee was thus related by marriage to the family. And I think that because of Lee's role in the Civil War, after the war, people basically forgot who the Custises were. As
0: somebody who's been spending the past five years working on the Martha Washington <laughs> collection of her letters, this is such a necessary book. This is going to be so good. I'm very excited about it.
1: I'm excited too.
0: So when I asked you if you were interested in appearing on the podcast, you sent me this fantastic letter from Rosalie Steer-Calvert to her mother. How did you come across this letter?
1: So I knew about Rosalie because i had actually come across her in my previous project too and knew that she mentioned the Custises. There is an edited and translated edition of her letters to her family that's called The Mistress of Riversdale, The Plantation Letters of Rosalie Steer Calvert, and it's uh, edited and translated. Almost all the letters are translated from French by Margaret Law Calcott, and these letters are actually most of the originals are still in Belgium so having this translated edition with annotations and everything is amazing and she tells many interesting stories about the Custises she's about the same age as they are even though she is their aunt she's married to their uncle George Calvert and she lives fairly close to DC so they're sort of in the same social circles so,
0: as an introduction to our listeners, who was Rosalie Steer Calvert?
1: So, I think the first thing Rosalie, if she was here, would want you to know is that she was a European woman from a very wealthy family. She was born in Antwerp to Henry Joseph Steer and Mary Louise Peters in 1778 they have a nice townhouse in antwerp they have a chateau outside of the city and they also have a 14th century castle that her mother inherited and her mother also inherited a huge art collection of works by dutch masters so this is an aristocratic family very wealthy and they are worried about the advancing french revolution It's coming their way, and so they flee for America in 1794. So it's Rosalie, who's 16, her parents, and then her two older siblings, Isabel, along with her husband and kids, and then her brother Charles and his wife. And then, of course, they also bring the paintings. (laughs) This is the finest collection of art to be on American soil ever at this point. And the family, it's sort of a family business, and in fact, Rosalie – keeps up being part of that business I think the rest of her life and so they're first getting settled in Philadelphia then they move to Annapolis where she meets George Calvert and Rosalie is actually the English speaker in the family she had been at a school with English nuns before they came to America so she meets George Calvert from the famous Calvert family in Maryland, although he is from the illegitimate line of Calverts. That illegitimate line still ends up inheriting plenty of money and land. You know, he also is related to George Washington's family through his sister, who's married John Park Custis. So, you know, he's a pretty eligible guy. But her father, they weren't planning on staying in America for good. Their hope was always to go back to Europe. And... He didn't want Rosalie marrying an American. He eventually relents, though, and they finally get married in 1799, and in fact, they visit Mount Vernon on their wedding trip. Oh. So pretty nice uh, honeymoon. <laughs> they later settle at a plantation in Maryland that had 76 enslaved people, and then they end up moving to a house that her father started to build, he bought a plot of land not far from where George Calvert and Rosalie were living. uh, And they called the plot there Riversdale. And he starts building this gorgeous mansion. And this is, if you know the geography of the area, Bladensburg is not that far from D.C. This is where there'd be an important battle uh, leading up to the invasion of Washington in the War of 1812. So she's not far from the city, but still in an area that's mostly, you know, rural plantations. Things get better back in Europe for aristocrats. And so the steers go back. They leave in the summer of 1803, leaving Rosalie and George and their growing family and a large number number of enslaved people in this absolutely beautiful federal mansion, which anybody can go visit. Uh, It's open to the public, Riversdale in Prince George's County, Maryland.
0: Before we dig into the letter, I like to introduce some of the key players usually before we go in. So uh, a person who features heavily in this letter is Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, who the first time I read it and I heard Madame Bonaparte, I had no idea who they were referring to. Um, So could you uh, introduce... Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte?
1: Yeah, I think Elizabeth probably would have looked at somebody like Rosalie as a model of who she wanted to be. She was born to a wealthy Baltimore family in 1785, but she always sort of yearned to be a European aristocrat. So it was just her luck that she met and fell in love with Napoleon's younger brother, Jerome, who's traveling in the U.S. in the early 19th century, and they end up getting married in late 1803. And this marriage is problematic in a bunch of ways. First of all, the Bonapartes are Catholic. And while Maryland is more tolerant towards Catholics than other places, this is still a problem in America. The other thing is, you know, he's the brother of... An arch enemy of the United States. Napoleon is, you know, we still have the Napoleonic Wars going on in Europe at this point. They're a threat to the United States. I don't think people realize how close America came to war with France in the War of 1812. They almost did a joint declaration of war against Britain and France. So like, even in 1803, Napoleon is not a popular person in America. And so for an American to marry his brother, not only is she marrying into an enemy family, she's marrying into an aristocratic, you know, an emperor's family. Is she going to get some kind of title? What is that going to mean? We weren't supposed to have aristocracy in America. They actually consider a constitutional amendment, possibly because of this. That's at least what one of her biographers, Charlene Boyer Lewis, argues that they're so freaked out about Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte that they're, they almost pass an amendment to sort of ban titles anybody in America now Elizabeth's marriage doesn't turn out great they have a short run in the U.S. where they wow everybody with how well-dressed they are and fancy and wealthy and then Jerome goes back to France to try and you know smooth things over with Napoleon who clearly wanted him to marry into another royal family Napoleon's not having it he has the marriage annulled when Elizabeth and their infant son are on a boat trying to get into France, he blocks the boat from coming in to port. He oh does not God. let Elizabeth into the country. It's hard to even imagine that you could do that back then, <laughs> yeah. but it was physically possible. But he blocked her, cuts off the marriage, and marries Jerome off to a German princess. So Elizabeth, none of this has happened at the point of this letter. She's still on cloud nine with her new husband and fabulous wealth. Um, so that's sort of what you need to know about her to understand the letter. For people who are maybe a little
0: bit more politically savvy living in the federal city at this point, do you think that they saw this relationship as doomed from the start and all of a sudden, though, they have to, to meet with these people? Or how how do you think Washington society saw this match?
1: There was a wariness in Washington at this point, in part because of Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans who have come into power, and they are wary of any signs of aristocracy, They thought that the Federalists and the Washington and Adams administrations had been too aristocratic, almost royalist, that they had too much ritual, too much display of wealth and fancy clothes. And they get nervous around the Europeans, just even the ambassadors that are in town, because of their displays of wealth. You know, when they have dinner parties, it's at a level that no American can afford. Uh. And you know so it's and even if we think about the biggest houses in America at this point are just puny compared to the castles in Europe there's a real difference here and there's a political issue there too because they think that to have a republic to have a democratic republic you need to have virtuous citizens and part of that virtue is being simple being modest that any displays of luxury are going to get you into bad political waters. And so there's a real political and even partisan balance because of the Democratic Republicans being more into this idea. Rosalie certainly would have identified with the Federalists, the Custises. Three of the four of them were Federalists. Eliza Park Custis Law was actually a Democratic Republican. Ever the contrarian. (laughs) Yes, that caused a rift with the rest of her family. Rosalie was also a monarchist. She thought the whole democracy thing in America was silly. She became friends with a later French, later British ambassador, Augustus Foster. You know, she had a sort of flirtatious friendship with him that she wrote about as well. And that's when I first came across her. But, you know, she in some ways is able to pull off the aristocratic European thing in ways that are safer because she actually is European.
0: So I think that's Very good context leading into this letter. The only other couple points I want to mention is at the time of writing this, Rosalie is 26 years old. Uh, She'd been married to George Calvert for about five years at this point. Um, She had two young children and she was very early on in her pregnancy with a third at the time that she wrote this. Um, And she's writing the letter to her mother who had just recently gone back she uh, they had they had moved back to the netherlands and so she's actually only just recently moving into that beautiful house and is continuing work on it but there's a little bit of discussion of the house in the letter so i wanted to mention that key players in the letter are elizabeth patterson bonaparte um but we also you'll also recognize the name thomas law who comes up in this letter uh who who's thomas law
1: (laughs) so thomas law is this british gentleman from actually a pretty well-to-do well-known british family he had served in india and been a colonial official for a while and then decided to come to the united states and he shows up in philadelphia when it is the national capital and meets eliza he's 20 years older than she is but They fall in love and get married in the spring of 1796 and then move to Washington, D.C. This is before the city has even really been built. Law is trying to be an investor in this new capital city, and so they're living in one of the first houses in the city at the point that they move there near Capitol Hill. And Thomas Law also had three children born to an Indian woman. We don't know anything about this woman, the relationship. know to what degree this was a sexual exploitation relationship but he does end up bringing two of those children to america uh, john and edmund law and they grew up in america even though they were almost as old as eliza she wanted to be a mother figure to them and then she and thomas also had a young daughter who was born in 1797 who was eliza law jr basically and at the point of this letter, Law had gone to Europe for a while. And he was away for longer than Eliza would have liked. And she starts getting annoyed. He comes back. They have a huge party to welcome him home. Rosalie, you know, is involved in all these family parties when he gets back. And she recounts that. And, you know, he's sort of a eccentric but uh, likable witty guy who likes to write poems as we'll see but it is not long after this letter takes place that he and Eliza end up separating and it is the scandal of Washington for the rest of 1804 everybody in Washington is writing about this and you know you can see with his behavior in this letter you know Is there some sense that this is part of Eliza's problem with him? We don't know. Basically, from what I can tell, a lot of people were speculating about why they separated. And even Rosalie, Nellie, Eliza's sister, they basically say they just couldn't get along with each other. That's all it came down to. Back then, you did not separate for that reason. But Eliza was a really independent person. And she wasn't going to do things the way other people did. So that should help knowing that before we get into the letter.
0: Rosalie Steer calvert to Marie-Louise Steer, Riversdale, 2nd March, 1804. Dear Mama, I haven't heard from you in two months. During this time, there have been a huge number of ships coming into Baltimore from Amsterdam, and with each one, I thought I would finally receive your letters. You can imagine my impatience at being disappointed each time. We have had a very hard winter. We could cross over the Potomac on horseback. The snow was deep and stayed on the ground a long time and we had the pleasure of going to Washington by sleigh several times. One night, as we were returning home, we met another sleigh, carrying Betsy Lloyd. The road was narrow, our horses very lively, and in passing the other too fast, we overturned in several feet of snow. Before the gentleman in the other sleigh could come to our aid, we were already on our feet and ready to go on our way. This makes for a diversion of sorts, and is pleasant. There were several large dancing parties this winter. Mr. Taylor gave a very nice one a few days ago. He had two bands of good musicians, one for the dancers, the other made up of military instruments, clarinets, kettle drums, etc. etc. They played in the round salon where it made a delightful effect. I like dancing more than ever. There is a ball every Tuesday, alternately at Georgetown and on Capitol Hill. The clothes they wear are extremely becoming, although some display a little too much among others, Madame Bonaparte, who wears dresses so transparent and tight you could see her skin through them, no chemise at all. Mrs. Mary, the new English ambassadress, is very fat and covers only with fine lace two objects that could fill a fourth of a bushel. I'm enclosing some verses that Mr. Law, who stayed here, gave me the other day. You may not understand all of the humor, you must get my brother to read them to you. The occasion which gave rise to them is this. Mrs. Bonaparte came to a dance, given by Mr. Smith, wearing a dress so transparent that you could see the color and shape of her thighs, and even more. Several ladies made a point of leaving the room, and one informed the Belle that if she did not change her manner of dressing, she would never be asked anywhere again. Our nephew, Law, who was a great poet, composed the first verses. Colonel Burr wickedly told the lady that someone had written some very pretty verses about her beauty, and she so insisted on seeing them that the poor poet, in order to keep his eyes, had to write the second verses. At the moment, I am busy making curtains, slipcovers, etc. for the dining room. The curtains are of that blue-striped English cloth you gave me, trimmed with a white fringe, intermixed with small blue tassels. There is just enough material for the windows and the sofa. The cornices are white and gilt, and I plan to paint the room yellow. The middle bedroom has curtains and bed hangings of white dimity with white fringe intermingled with green and red embellishment, which is quite elegant. The carpenter is going to start finishing the other bedroom now. I want to make the garden my principal amusement this summer. I hope that Charles will send me plans for the lake and for some bridges and gates. My children and my husband are in good health. Please give my compliments to Papa. Your affectionate daughter, R.E. Calvert. Uh, And then appended to this letter, included in it, is, of course, Thomas Law's poem, which I thought I would let Cassandra deliver.
1: (laughs) I was at Mrs. Smith's last night and highly gratified myself. Well, what of Madame Bonaparte? Why, she's a little whore at heart. Her lustful looks, her wanton air, her limbs revealed her bosom bare show her ill-suited for the life of a Colombian's modest wife. Wisely, she's chosen her proper line. She's formed for Jerome's concubine. Napoleon, full of trouble, conquers for an empty bubble. Jerome's conquest, full of pleasure, gains him a substantial treasure. The former triumphs to destroy. The latter triumphs to enjoy. The former's praise were little worth if even he vanquished all the earth the latter heaven itself has won for the adored Miss Patterson. (laughs) And I should note that there's a little section of the poem where there's some ellipses and there's a footnote that says these lines were probably censored by Thomas Law. And we never knew what those lines said until very recently (laughs) when I found another copy of this poem, which must have been Law's own copy of the poem that did not have these lines censored and those two lines so this comes right after um, her lustful looks her wanton air her limbs revealed her bosom bare nay something else almost displayed where decent nature spreads a shade (laughs) so those are the lines cut out and we have to assume if they were censored he's referring to female anatomy uh, (laughs) there and he's like
0: maybe I don't want my aunt's mother to (laughs) like Exactly. Uh, so that's pretty saucy. That's a that's a saucy poem. I love the image of Aaron Burr basically going up to <laughs> Madame Bonaparte and telling her about this poem. Um, it just seems like such
1: high school bullying
0: tactics. What is your take on Thomas Law writing this poem?
1: You know, he liked writing poems. He wrote other sort of playful poems. I mean, he wrote a poem about his separation from Eliza at a certain point. Um, we know he wrote a lot of poems. And I don't know that he would have seen this as necessarily malicious. Hmm. Um, I, But, you know, he is making a joke at an, the expense of a woman's sexuality. So there is a hard edge there. And, you know, making a fairly sexual set of jokes here about her, which he clearly thinks are justified based on the way she's dressing. Now, you know, obviously she would not have agreed that, <laughs> that would be justified. What she's wearing is the fashion in Paris. and I wanted
0: to ask, is
1: that – so is this really – like she's showing up in this clear –
0: dress or this transparent dress is that something that like people were wearing elsewhere or people were wearing and that people in Washington were just surprised by or is this something that tells you about maybe their response to it was dramatic yeah
1: there's some debate about how transparent this was you know she's (laughs) not wearing something that's you know see-through plastic right but You know, what she's wearing is a white gown that doesn't have any undergarments. And as you know, if you wear something white, you can see through it sometimes if it's not thick enough fabric. And so that is probably what's happening here. The other thing is usually women were not wearing things that other, at, other than at the bust, they weren't wearing things that clung to their bodies, partially because they had these undergarments separating them. So the fact that there was no in-between, this could cling to her body in a way that would show the form that people weren't used to. So there are people, you can see portraits of French women at this time wearing see-through dresses where you can pretty clearly see their breasts through the dress. It's not clear that that's what's happening Mm, here. Yeah. It's unclear exactly how transparent this is, but certainly Americans are more prudish than Europeans when it comes to this kind of clothing.
0: Do you feel like the response to Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte was politically charged? Because a lot of times when there's these sort of public outrage about a woman's behavior, there's more to it than just... Is on its face, um, and I notice even in the poem he mentions he says something about a Colombian's modest wife. So he's saying he's he's tying it into the politics of the time of what's appropriate for a Colombian's modest wife to be wearing.
1: Right, and Colombia is a figure representing America. So he's right. saying you know an American's modest wife would not dress this way. And we were talking before about the importance of virtue in a democratic republic, and particularly in. Washington after the Jeffersonians have come in and they are trying to emphasize simplicity as part of their virtue. Now, that didn't mean they weren't showing off wealth. I mean, even wearing a white gown, preferably for them with undergarments, was a way you could show off simplicity, but you were also showing off wealth because having a white gown meant you were rich enough to have people clean it for you. And, you know, it was very labor intensive to clean white fabric and keep out sweat stains and things like that. So having a white gown, in fact, could both display wealth and simplicity. Uh, A see-through white gown is another story. There were other instances where Americans in Washington at this time are worried about what people are wearing and what it's going to do for the future of the republic. So that British ambassador's wife, Mrs. Mary, shows up at a party wearing supposedly undemocratic diamonds and was turned away. And, you know, Jefferson famously received Mr. Mary when he first came to call on him at the president's house wearing a robe and tattered slippers, and he was sort of tossing one of the slippers on his toe. Jefferson could afford to wear nice clothes, right? They're sending (laughs) messages with their clothes about politics. And so she happens, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, is sending a message that people don't like. Mm -hmm. And One of her biographers, Charlene Boyer-Lewis, says, in American terms, she failed as a citizen and a lady. And I think that sort of sums it up.
0: I was excited to see the mention of Mrs. Mary in this. A little bit of uh, unfortunate fat shaming of Mrs. Mary. But that was a funny, it's kind of a funny line with the two objects that could fill a fourth of a bushel.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, she, Rosalie isn't pulling any punches here either. <laughs> no. She could be pretty acerbic in her letters.
0: Yeah. Uh, and yeah, she's clearly delighted with this poem, if she wants to pass this on. Um, when she has the line where she says, uh, to get my brother to read read them to you, is that because of a language issue, or is that because she thinks her mom won't pick up on sort of the saucier comedy?
1: My guess is that with the translation or just the euphemisms, that she thinks her her mother is not going to understand the humor of this poem and wants her to pick up on it. Uh, this isn't necessarily the poem kind of poem that I can see an American woman sending to her mother. <laughs> I mean, it, it's even without those censored lines, it's fairly inappropriate.
0: Well, as I was trying to to look up more about the context, I did come across the way that. Louisa Catherine Adams described Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte at one of the parties at the same social season. Um, She said, we were last evening at a ball given by Mrs. by Ms. Thornton. Madame Bonaparte, who makes a great noise here, was there almost naked. (laughs) That's the only way she described it, but that just made me laugh. (laughs) She makes a great noise uh, and was almost naked.
1: Yeah, I mean, the almost naked thing is um, that seems to be what people thought it looked like. Yeah. Although, I'm sure by our terms, she would have looked much more clothed. (laughs) Right. Because
0: I know the fashion was, was getting a little bit more daring with like lower cut dresses and I know that sometimes they would have, at Dolly Madison's like squeezes or whatever, there was some discussion of the way women were dressed. It seems like Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte really wanted to be a part of sort of European society and this was her way of doing that in America.
1: Right, and she must have been somebody who sort of delighted in getting people talking because you don't wear a dress that you know is going to be scandalous in America to a party held by the Secretary of the Navy in the nation's capital full of politicians. And, you know, and Burr obviously thinks this whole thing is hysterical too. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think in some ways he and Thomas Law were probably kindred spirits. Um Burr had a playfulness to him and a wit. He also was uh, somebody who liked women a lot in various ways. I mean, Burr himself, while we don't know of any children out of wedlock, he had had an affair with a woman named Sansei, uh, who actually wrote a novel in letters partially based on their relationship. Burr himself is an interesting figure here in his mischief making.
0: So that's, I think, is a side to it, because, you know, Thomas Law came to the United States with three children that he had with a woman who he was not married to. And Burr obviously has his own sort of sexual scandals, a lot of scandals like this uh, in Washington. So it's kind of, of course, Thomas Law can come to America with three illegitimate children and still write a poem where he calls somebody else a whore, which is just delightful.
1: Well, and I think that really comes out of the fact that sexuality... There's different standards of sexuality for elite white women and even poorer white women. Those same sexual standards don't necessarily apply. And certainly to women of color, different sexual standards would have applied. And, you know, who was appropriate to be sexually exploited varied by race. I mean, Rosalie's own husband had a number of children with uh, an enslaved woman, you know, in what can only have been an exploitative relationship. And, And she knew about it. Eliza's brother Wash had children with enslaved women so you know they could still have a very strict standard about white elite white women's purity and think differently about women of color
0: so this with the way that Law and Burr are sort of delighted by this very scantily clad woman at this party and it's simultaneously he's complimenting her with this poem but also degrading her. But also he he clearly is getting a big kick out of this this woman. Just being creepy. I feel like he's just being creepy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's hard to know exactly how this would have come off to her because he then does because Burr has said, Oh, you know, Mr. Law wrote a poem about you, then he writes this alternate poem about her that she's going to be able to see. And you know, writing poetry there about somebody else is a bit flirtatious um he is a married man and he you know he's sort of known as a character i mean there's a story about him we don't know exactly when this would have occurred but there's a story about him that when he was at the springs at berkeley springs he had gone in to the baths the public baths there and then forgot to get dressed again and walked out into a crowd of people naked (laughs) I mean, we don't know for sure that this happened. Where decent nature casts a shade, Thomas (laughs) Laugh. Right, right. Well, just the fact that that story would be told about him suggests there is an eccentricity about him. I don't see it necessarily as creepiness. Although, again, we don't know how exactly he approached Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. A lot of his poems come off as more playful. He definitely gave poems to other people. Mm. Through today's lens, certainly there is a creepiness factor. You know, he was old enough to be Eliza's father. He had these children out of wedlock. He later would have a child with um, an African-American woman. Uh, He may have brought a French mistress back from Europe with him when he came back in 1803. So this is a man who, you know, certainly applies different sexual standards to himself than to women of his class
0: i like the his last verse that he added where he says napoleon's brother is smarter than napoleon because while napoleon might take over the world he doesn't have this beautiful wife someone of the adored miss patterson which i mean he'd have to add into that poem to make it less insulting he wrote another poem about elizabeth patterson after he saw Yeah, so she had her portrait done by Gilbert Stuart that showed her face from three different angles, and Law responded to that portrait. He said, The painter won't overwhelm the sculptor's art, for Venus' statue we no longer fear. The matchless form of Madame Bonaparte will not by Stuart at full length appear. But ah, the figure with three heads in one, with so much fervor idolized will be, I tremble lest our faith should be undone with this new captivating trinity." It seems like she was very striking, like a beautiful woman.
1: So you can see some of Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte's dresses and jewelry, even her tiara, at the Maryland Center for History and Culture and on their website. So they don't have the famous transparent gown. Um, And she was absolutely a beauty and took pride in that. And in fact, lived a very long, long life until I believe 1878
0: yeah, so after after everything sort of blew up with Napoleon, what was what was next for Elizabeth?
1: So she was trying to get some kind of recognition for her son and payments from the French. She was hoping that her son would move to France and stay in France. She herself went to France for a while. and she was in some of the same circles as um, Eliza Park Custis law in Washington for a little while. So she she was back in Washington at a certain point. So she's going back and forth between Europe and America. Her son ultimately settles back in America to her disappointment. And then she also comes back to America.
0: Is she still sort of part of high society at that point? Or does she have to kind of reclaim her spot?
1: I think that she always had an air about her. <laughs> that um, And I think she saw herself as superior to a lot of people in America. Mm-hmm. She always looked down on America and would have preferred to be in Europe. So you can definitely, you can read a lot more about her in Charlene Boyer-Lewis's biography or else Carol Birkin also has a biography of her. So you have two different options for reading about her. And in fact, uh, Charlene Boyer-Lewis's book has that portrait on the front, this Stuart portrait that we're talking oh. about here with the three three heads in one.
0: That's cool. Um, so I feel like there's there's a lot of sort of gender expectations and things going on this letter. What does this whole sort of debacle say about the expectations of womanhood in the early republic?
1: Yeah, I think this really shows the degree to which womanhood, gender, sexuality are all policed in this period and policed as part of a larger political project. And a project about making a new country, making a new democratic republic and making a country that is different from Europe. They can wear these scandalous see through gowns in aristocratic old France, where, you know, part of the panic about the French Revolution that happened in both America and Europe was that women were getting too influential in this period and it was their fault that the government fell and that things went to pieces. Right. And so there is this sort of fear of women's sexuality. And that's not to say that women have no role. In fact, you know, if. If their bad behavior can hurt things, their good behavior can help things. Part of their role in upholding their public is this model of what we call Republican womanhood or Republican motherhood. They were supposed to be well-educated, to be able to converse with their husbands and raise their sons to be good citizens. So they do have this role, but it's certainly quite a restrictive one. I think the other thing we can sort of see from this is The way Washington society is starting to come together, the city has only existed for a few years, less than five years really at the point of this party. And it's clear that it is not going to be a city like New York and Philadelphia that have an established wealthy elite. This is going to be a different place with different standards, a different tone. And you know that would change with different presidents, but Jefferson is really trying to get things off on a different foot. And, you know, he certainly has pretty conservative ideas about women's roles and what they should be. And I think we see some of that here too.
0: It almost feels like she sort of like busted in at exactly the wrong moment for Thomas Jefferson's vision of what he wanted the United States to be could sort of, as in the case of many women in history, sort of take the brunt of a lot of this, uh, the blame of the downfall of, of society. There's no, there's no room for being able to see someone's thighs through their dress in Republican motherhood.
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. Uh, Catherine Akerley Mitchell talked about in 1811, Elizabeth coming to a presidential dinner wearing a dress that, quote, exposed so much of her bosom and laid bare her back nearly halfway to the bottom of her waist. The state of nudity in which she appeared attracted the attention of the gentlemen, for I saw several of them taking a look at her bubbies when they were conversing with her. Which I've never seen the word bubbies used for boobs before. But, and I remember asking my advisor in grad school when I read this, is that a thing? And she's like, I've never heard that before.
0: Yeah, I imagine it doesn't come up a lot of times in correspondence, but she had to bring that up. Of people, because people are threatening her that she can't go to any, they, she won't be invited to any more events and she'll be thrown out of events and women are leaving when they see her walk in, in these dresses and she just
1: keeps wearing those dresses to these parties. Yes. Clearly, Elizabeth is a determined woman. And I think in some ways, it's hard to imagine her getting along with Eliza, part Custislaw, because of how headstrong both of them were. But they do have this in common, that they have this independent streak, that there are certain things in their lives that they are just going to do. Whether it's Eliza saying, I am separating from my husband and getting my own farm and you just try and stop me. I'm doing it. Or whether it's Elizabeth saying, you know, I'm going to marry the French emperor's brother and I'm going to wear what I want, even if it scandalizes you. There is something likable about that I think in both of these women
0: absolutely they I mean they were born into a position in society where they have a little bit more flexibility although they also have a lot of as you can tell of scrutiny public scrutiny and they just ignore the scrutiny and just do what they want
1: (laughs) yeah and Eliza Park Custis Law at one point says basically that she would have been happier if she'd been born a man or her life would have been easier. Like she wanted to get the kind of education the boys got. I don't think Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte felt like that. I think she reveled in <laughs> She being, seems pretty feminine to me. <laughs> yeah. I think she reveled in being a woman. But certainly also, you know, had this independent streak. It's interesting to see Burke come in here because he's also… He's friends with both of the laws. Uh, He is a Democratic-Republican like him, like both of them. And he hasn't killed Hamilton yet, so keep that in (laughs) mind. Uh, Although, you know, I'm quite amazed if you look at the accounts of when he comes back, I'm not sure that that would have changed how popular he was with the Democratic-Republicans. They apparently welcome him with open arms back into Washington when he comes back after having killed Hamilton. I remember reading about that. Kind of shocking. But yeah, so he was friends with Eliza Park custis Law. You know, so I'm sure that this was some of the, you know, chit-chat at the party and uh, just causing trouble that Burr was known for.
0: Rosalie Steer, she, she, her politics are quite different from the Democratic-Republicans, but it seems like she
1: sort of finds herself in this group. Well, she is hanging out at this party because it's sort of for everybody in Washington, but her circles, certainly she would have preferred staying in federalist circles and, in fact, Eliza after she separates from Thomas Law goes and stays with Rosalie for a little while and you know they're close for a while Rosalie says some pretty nice things about her and then they sour on each other Mm. and Rosalie later says like I was wrong about her I can't stand her and and this is her niece so you know I'm sure they still saw each other but their relationship definitely soured
0: well thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast uh it was a delight to have you Thanks for having me. Uh, as for my listeners, I will provide show notes. I'll link to some of these books that we've been mentioning, some of the documents, many uh, links to some of the places that we've mentioned and some of these exhibits. So you'll have some stuff to look through. And as ever, I am your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much.